I've often heard it said that Christians need to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Have you heard this before? I think it's attributed to Karl Barth, but I've heard it throughout the years, and I think it's great advice, though maybe we should update it, check your Bible apps, check your news apps, make sure that you're staying in tune with both. Um, I love the heart of the advice. I think that Christians should um, be in, informed with what's going on in the world. We should check the news. We should, we should read. We should be aware of what's happening in our world. Um, while I completely agree with the heart of the advice, I found over the years that I misapply the advice. I, I think, well, as long as I'm going through my one-year Bible reading plan, I can absolutely indulge in the news. And I'll just spend hours digesting the news. And um, be, I found that I can be a complete um, information addict. I don't know if any of you uh, sympathize with this, but especially during last year's election cycle, I found with the information coming in by the second, I almost overdosed on inf information a few times. My head literally almost exploded. Right now, I find myself um, very concerned about the state of our country, the state of our world, and, um, and I'm reading books, I'm reading articles. I want to stay in tune with what's going on in our world. I want to know the Christian response. Um, last week, Scott was taking a playful jab at me but he had, a, he had a little bit of the truth in there. I do spend a lot of time on sites like Babylon Bee and Twitter. It comes from a desire to be informed. I want to see the world clearly. I want to know. In the internet age, this seems like a virtue. Bought in. We're, we're supposed to digest as much information. We have information flowing into our phones uh, that's unparalleled in the history of the universe. And uh, we're supposed to digest it all. And I try my hardest, but I'm slowly learning that God wants to cultivate something better in his people. We need to do more than simply see the world and know the world and understand the world, though that's important. We need to learn to see God and to be grounded in a better vision, in a better reality. This changes everything. We need to cultivate a captivating vision of God. Listen to Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Augustine said it well. Our whole business in this life is to restore to health the eye of the heart by which God may be seen. Observing the world with our eyes is good. I'd encourage you to keep doing this, but if we want to act like the people of God, if we want to respond with confidence in a chaotic time, we need to cultivate this vision of God. We need to see him with the eyes of our heart. And at the center of this vision is a throne. And on this throne is a king, and this king is the good and loving, sovereign God of the universe. May we learn to behold his face. Now, at various times in human history, God has peeled back the heavens and allowed his people to come in and see a vision of him sitting on his throne. When the world's falling apart, he brings his people up to show them, it's okay, I'm in control, everything is covered. Over the next three weeks, I'd like to explore this vision from three different angles. It's all over the Bible. It's for our benefit because we need to remember that God is on his throne. We're gonna look at this vision from the perspectives of David, Isaiah, and John. As we'll find, all these men knew what it was like to live in chaotic times. At various points in David's life, his, his mentor, his friends, his son, his enemies, they all wanted him dead. And he went to the throne. Isaiah, he was one of the few sane voices in his, uh, in his time period that was speaking truth, 
speaking clearly. He was crying out to a deaf and dying world. They wouldn't listen. God showed him the throne. John, literally the last surviving apostle, all of his friends that had spent years around Christ with him, they'd been killed. And they literally couldn't kill John. So they just sent him to an island to rot. And on this island, he goes to the throne. It's a vision that God wants his people to see and understand. They recorded their experience for our benefit. Now, my goal is not for us just to learn a few more cool Bible stories. I want us to see God on his throne. I want us to go there and worship. And so let's jump in. This morning, we're gonna start with David. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 11. This is the text we're gonna study this morning. Now, you're you're gonna find that this text is slightly different from the other text. Isaiah, John, they both get to somehow go there. They're transported in a vision and get to see this reality and they describe it in in, in vivid language. And we're gonna go there over the next two weeks. We're not sure that David ever had that experience and yet it is clear from his writings that he went there and worshiped constantly. He cultivated a vision of reality, of God on his throne, which fueled him and gave him great confidence to face the most horrific circumstances on this world, on this earth. Let's read the text, Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is on his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him ring coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see this morning. We pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that we may see you. We have lots of information about our world, Father, but this morning we want to focus on your word and we want to focus on you. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the psalm is divided into two parts. Verses one through three talk about the chaos in David's world. It's gonna vividly describe some really horrific scenes that are going on outside of David's window. Verses four to seven, though, will describe the confidence in David's God. This is the ground on which David stood. Let's explore each part. Let's start with the chaos in David's world, verses one through three. Now, David is clearly writing this psalm about a horrible situation. His life is chaotic. Most commentators believe that he's running from King Saul early in, his, uh, early in his ministry. He's on the run, but really this is speculation. This is what I love about the Psalms. They rarely give us context. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, as biblical interpreters, we're supposed to get as much context as we can, but the Psalms just don't give us context. Now commentators will try to put some context or think about a certain moment in David's life, but it's not there. It's just not. And I'm finding this is a good thing. The only bit of context that we have about this text is that it's written for the choir master. Was David facing personal adversity? Was this family falling apart? Was it political adversity? We don't know. 
we can surmise a bit, but we don't know. All that we know is that David wrote this to be sung by the people of God in a variety of different situations. And so whatever you find yourself this morning, if there's chaos in your life, you're commanded to sing the psalm. Psalm. We wanted to sing it together. So whatever's going on, let's sing the psalm. Now, as we get into the text, we can find that David's well-meaning friends, the advisors, his friends, the people that have his ear, they don't want to see their king suffer. David's world's falling apart. He's in a chaotic situation, but his friends step in to, to take him out of the pain, to take him out of this situation. Listen to verses one to three again, starting with the quotation at the end of verse one. This is their advice to David. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend their bow. They fitted their arrow to, sling, to string, uh, they fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's their advice. Can I confess something this morning? As I was studying this text this week, and I, I would like to say to you that I, I identified with David's confidence. I didn't. I identified with the advice of his advisors. I'm certain that I would not have been one of David's mighty men. I, I don't have the physique of a mighty man. And yet, if David had let me in his inner ring and let me in there to give some advice, I would have been right there in his ear saying, David, we gotta get out. Listen, uh, they're ready to kill us. I know it. We, we know our enemy that we gotta get out of here. If we let them win, if they overthrow you, you're, you're the anointed, we have nothing left. Let's run. I know a good spot. <laughs> I go there often, right? <laughs> that, that would have been my advice. I've identified with the well-meaning somewhat solid advice of the friends. Let's be honest, it is good advice. Practically speaking, the friends have done their research and they're legitimately freaked out. Their opponents were literally stringing the arrows to their bow, hiding in the dark, ready to take down the king. The advisors were well-informed, but they had bad advice. It translated into poor advice. It seems like good advice, but their information translated into bad advice. Information's helpful. We want information. We want to see the world. We want to read the news. We want to stay in tune, but information is limited. That's the problem with the information age. There's only so much information can do. And what I found is that information, seeing the world clearly, almost always leads to fear, and fear leads to bad advice and bad decisions and destructive choices. Think about it. Let's say you spend your evening, you, you, you're settling down, you pop some popcorn, watching an hour of CNN or Fox News. At the end of that hour, do you just turn the TV off and go, man, things are far better than I thought. <laughs> I'm ready to go run. I don't, I don't know. Do you ever feel encouraged after scrolling through Twitter? A half hour of Twitter, do you like shut your phone down and go, man, there's a lot of really great opinions out there. People are thinking clearly. Here, here's my favorite. Whenever you have like that sore on the back of your throat or whatever, you get on WebMD and you like, you check it and you're like, great, man, I've got three months to live. I'm ready to, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. Are you in a better frame of mind? Are you ready to make solid life decisions? You've got the information. Translates to fear, translates to bad advice. David's advisors had a lot of information about the tactics of their enemy. I'm sure they'd studied they knew how David should respond and they knew the catastrophic results of David failed to respond. L let's briefly diagnose it because there's, there's a little bit of wisdom here. They knew their enemy. They knew that their enemy was fitting the arrows to their bows. They meant to do lethal harm to the king. 
They didn't have the courage to come out in the open, though. They're hiding in the dark. This is how the enemy works. They're not easy to recognize. The enemy are cowards. They're not going to come out with a sword. They're not going to charge the enemy's gates. They're going to they're lurk in the shadows. And isn't this the case? The people that seek to take down God and his anointed, don't they hide in the dark? Come at you from every angle. You can't see them coming. David's friends also knew that they're not just seeking the king. They're seeking to tear down the foundations of the world, of God's created order. They want anarchy and they will stop at nothing short of that. They want to tear down the foundations. They want to tear down the institutions, the very order of society. God's created order, Genesis 1, crush it. We want our way. David's friends came to a logical conclusion, run for the hills. If the foundations are destroyed, we have nothing left. Let's find refuge now. It sounds like solid advice because what can we do if the foundations are destroyed? Answer it. What if they take our laws? What if our laws continue to change? What happens if the institutions of our society continue to crumble? What do you do? What do the righteous do? What if the church is persecuted? What do the righteous do? What if your family falls apart? What if you lose your health? What is the righteous to do without his health? What if you lose your health care? What can we do if the foundations are destroyed? This is, the, this is the question that the advisors asked. Do we have anything if we don't have our laws, if we don't have our peace, if we don't have our society and, and structure and order and health? They want to preserve the king's life. They want to preserve law and order. These are good things, but again, they're motivated by fear. With these fearful words lingering in the air, David begins the psalm brilliantly. I refuge in God. How dare you say to me, run for the hills like a bird? I trust in him. David knew the threat, but he was unshaken. How, how did David get this confidence? Where did this confidence come from? Was he ignoring the facts? Was he putting blinders on? Was he not picking up his newspaper? No, no, no. He, he was certainly aware of the threat. He didn't want the foundations to crumble, and yet he was unmoved. You see, David had developed a courageous attitude from years of worshiping the Lord. That's where God found him. He was in the fields playing his harp, singing to the God on his throne. And that cultivated a, a confidence in David's heart. He had a better vision of reality. Don't tell me things are falling, out, falling to pieces outside. I know, I, know the, I know the king. He's not simply seeing the world, he's seeing God on his throne and this changes everything. This leads to the second part of the outline. Read it with me, verses four through seven, talking about the confidence in David's God. This is the ground on which David stood. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. David's not worried about the enemy lurking in the dark because he's grounded in a better reality. He knew the truth. Now, this compelling vision of God on his throne changed nothing about David's circumstances. The enemy's still there, their arrows are still sharp. They're still aimed at the king. 
The king might, might not make it out alive. Society might crumble. But unlike his servants, David's not scared. He has hope, he has courage, and he won't fly to the hills like a little bird. He will refuge in God because God is in his holy temple. He is on his throne in heaven. The vision that David has cultivated over years of worship crushes the advice of his friends. They want him to run, but David knows that God's seated on his throne. Why, why would his child run? The friends say that the foundations are literally imploding. God, David says, no, 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 no. God's in a city whose foundations will never collapse. Hebrews 11 tells us that these Old Testament figures, they're longing to be with God in the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. The foundations of that temple will never collapse. They tell David that the wicked are lurking in the dark, but David knows that God sees everything. Listen to verse four again. Tune in on verse four for, for just a moment. The last part of verse four, his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. They might be able to blindside us, sure. We'll, we'll give them that. But they won't blindside God. They won't surprise God. David expresses this twice to emphasize the point. Maybe you're thinking, what does this mean that his eyelids see? His eyes see, his eyelids test. It's Hebrew poetry, it's parallelism. He's expressing the same point twice. It doesn't translate very well. Some commentators think that he's putting it right up to his eyes to inspect very closely. The point is this, nothing gets past God's all-seeing eye. He sees it all. Now, on the ground, if you're not cultivating this vision, on the ground, that seems like inactivity. God is just sitting there and he's letting the world fall in on us. But David knows that God is not inactive. His watchfulness is not inactivity. He's observing and he will judge when the time is right. Let's explore verses five and six for a moment. From his holy throne, God is observing the children of man. He sees everyone, everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room, God sees you. Think about that. But the text is very clear, thankfully, that he treats the righteous differently than he treats the wicked. There's two different approaches here. To the righteous, he tests. Let's think about this. God tests the righteous. Now, don't think that God is like a, a, giving you an SAT exam and he's walking up and down the aisles ready for you to make a mistake. If this is the vision of God that you have cultivated in your hand, head, that he is stringing the arrows to his bow and he's pulling it back and he's testing you, you've cultivated a, different, a reality of a different God. That's not the God of the Bible. Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? God is not ready just to strike you whenever you make a mistake. That's not what it means that he's testing the righteous. What this word indicates is the same um, kind of process that people use when they refine precious metals. He's testing, he's purifying, he's examining, he's breaking away the rough spots and he's bringing it out so that the, the piece of metal can shine. That's how God treats his children. He brings out your character. He brings out your endurance. He causes you to hope and to seek him first so that you may shine like stars in the universe. 
the authors of the New Testament are so thankful for this. They, the eyes of their heart are strong and they can see this reality so clearly that they actually will tell us to rejoice when suffering comes our way because God's just testing us. Listen to Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Isn't that the truth? Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What would we be if God refused to test us? This is sanctification. Since I've been at our church, I've noticed that suffering comes in just waves. And, and, and God tests us in these waves and this is the biggest wave. And at times, I don't know if I can make it through. I really don't. We have been tested severely. We're hurting. And yet, the faith that God has produced in his children in this church is stunning. It is shining brightly. And God is glorified. Praise his holy name. Okay, so David's friends, they're looking out the window and they're saying, David, the enemy's hand is pulling back the bow. David says, no, 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 God's hand is stronger. He's working. He's testing. So as we move on, we find that God doesn't have the same approach to dealing with the wicked. He, he tests his children. He, he tests the righteous. But the wicked, he judges. Verse six describes the fires of judgment that will fall on the heads of those who love violence. Read it again, verse six. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. What does this bring to mind? Sulfur and fire falling from the heavens. Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the classic example of perversion and wickedness and rebellion and tearing down the foundations of God's created order. They wanted to destroy the foundations. And God says, they're not going to be refined by his fire. They'll be devoured by it. They'll fall on their heads. They'll drink the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. It's the portion of their cup. Again, David's friends are looking out the window and they're saying, David, they're going to win. And David looks at the throne of God and he says, no, they're not. They're not going to win. Sure, they might get us now, but they're not going to win. If verse 6 terrifies you, let me speak to you for a moment. If you find yourself on the outside and the bow is in your hand and the cup is God's wrath, let me, let me just speak to you for a moment. And, and for the record, if you think that, oh, I'm not righteous, I'm a good person, Romans 3 will put you there. I belong there. We all belong there. None of us love righteousness. None of us seek God. All of us actually are outside of the camp. So if you're trusting on your own goodness to get in the camp, you're, you're outside. You're, you're in a deeper darkness than even the wicked that this text describes. If you find yourself here, and this is the portion of your cup, l- let me just, I pray that the Lord is convicting your soul right now. I, I don't want this. I don't want this for you. I want you to repent and believe in Jesus. In a moment, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna eat communion. And this is a good reminder that Jesus drank that cup for you. This doesn't have to be your cup. 
Don't stay in your sin. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. David was a confident man. He was confident because he knew God's character. He trusted in God's works, but more than that, more profoundly than that, he knew God's nature. He's righteous. He will act in righteousness. Look at verse seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. He's inherently good. We can trust in him. He'll do the right thing. And therefore, the upright, the righteous will behold his face. Now, verse seven is a powerful answer to the advisor's question in verse three. And maybe that's ringing around in your head. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Should we run? Should we fight? No, 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 no. The righteous will do what the righteous love to do. The righteous will behold God's face and worship. We'll worship. That's the answer. The world's falling apart. What do we do? We, we sing. Let's open Psalm 11 and let's sing it. Let's grab a piano, a guitar. Let's sing when the foundations are crumbling in. Let's praise God's holy name. Now listen, David's friends wanted safety. All of us want safety. Safety is okay to want for. I'm sure David wanted safety. Um, but the righteous don't run for God, run to God for safety. They run to God to behold his glorious face in that order. And only then do we find that God is our refuge. Listen to Derek Kidner. God as refuge may be sought for motives that are all too self-regarding. But to behold his face is a goal which only love has any interest. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God's righteousness first. Know him. Worship him. Love him. And all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need. But don't just seek him for that for his stuff, seek him for him because that's all you need. Can't mix up the order. Think about it this way and I'm done after this. There's a lot of people in the Bible that witness miracles. God loves to give miracles. We pray God save us and he saves. God feed us and he feeds. Heal us, he heals. God loves to take care of his people and to display his glorious powers. But think about this. The people in the Bible that receive his miracles aren't always changed. Think of Hezekiah. I, I can't imagine a man that was able to see more miracles than King Hezekiah. He the Assyrians are marching down on the, on the tent, on the, on the city, and Hezekiah prays and 185,000 people are dead. God knew what he needed. He saved him. A few years later, Hezekiah was dying of an illness and, and uh, he prays out to God and God gives him 15 more years. Miracle, miracle. And then at the end of his life, it seems like Hezekiah was completely unchanged. He was careless. He invited the Babylonians in to inventory the temple, which set up the destruction a few years later. Careless. Think of John 5, the man that's lethargically sitting by the pool and he wants to get in and Jesus comes by and he says, I'll heal you. And he gets up and he goes and sins. John 6, Jesus miraculously feeds the, the 5,000 with the loaves and, and the fishes. And the next morning, they're asking for breakfast. They completely missed it. The miracles don't necessarily get to our heart. And so if you're praying for a miracle, I hear you. God hears you. God wants to answer and he will. He's our refuge. But just remember, they don't always change the, the heart. Think about this though. The men and women in the Bible that fell down in worship before God and that saw the throne and that wrestled with God all night long 
and that went out and looked at the stars and beheld God's glorious face. They came away from these visions profoundly changed. Now they walked the rest of their lives with a limp. God God may have just shredded their souls in the process, but they were profoundly changed in a way that those that just got miracles maybe weren't. And so listen, while safety, comfort, provision, refuge, these are good. These These are not the goal though. God is the goal. And the people of God will seek him to worship. And so let's ask it again. If you want confidence in a world that whose foundations are destroying right now, falling apart, crumbling. Let's ask the question again. What can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? We will behold his face and worship. We'll sing. Let us strengthen the eyes of our heart by which God may be seen. The throne of God is a throne of grace and we can approach this throne this morning because Jesus opened the way and he's inviting us to come and worship and we come through his body and blood broken and shed for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would draw us to yourself. Our one desire in this room, in this moment, right now, is to know you, to see you, to worship you. God, we want to be like David. And we want to respond to chaos and adversity with great confidence. But Lord, we often fail. I confess my sin to you this morning. I often fail. I want to collect all the information. But I know this information usually leads to fear. I want to run. I want to fight. I want to accuse. I want to defend myself. God, forgive me. And may we as your church this morning take refuge in you and nothing else. Lord, may our hearts be drawn so closely to your own heart as David's was that the impulse to flee will be tempered and then replaced by a desire to seek your face in total trust. Lord, we want to see you. We want to know you and we want to do so without the slightest trace of self-interest. Would you cause your spirit to mold us into the image of your son from one degree of glory to another as we simply behold your face and worship. In Jesus' name. Amen.